Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. I just had to run stairs because I initially forgot the book of the week, which is A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life by Heather Haying and Brett Weinstein. Uh, the accompanying cocktail is called Hunter-Gatherer. It is one ounce of Jägermeister, one ounce of Kochi Americano, three quarter ounces of spiced raspberry syrup, and three quarter ounces of lemon juice. Um, mint and raspberries to garnish. I don't have those because I haven't done my shopping yet, so I don't have the garnish, but... And the recipe calls for spicy raspberry syrup, and it has a recipe for making the spicy raspberry syrup. I am going to cheat and just use a dash of the bitters. Uh, basically, you make simple syrup with raspberries and bitters thrown into it, and I'm just going to throw a dash on top, and we'll see what happens. So let's do this. For a little bit of background and context, uh, Haying and Weinstein are evolutionary biologists. Um, this information is highly relevant to understanding where they are coming from in writing this book. The opening premise of the book is that it's not a nature versus nurture world out there. It's nature and nurture, that they work together to make us who we are. And who we are includes millions of years of evolution. And bundled into evolution, part of the evolutionary story is culture and how culture emerges. That is also not a separate thing. A lot of people act like it's a very separate thing. It's not. It is part and parcel of who we are and how we came to be on this planet. And yet I don't believe I have ever actually had Jägermeister. I'm not sure what to make of the fact that this is a horrifying dark brown color. Okie dokie. So, let's see here. And understanding that culture is a part of, part and parcel of who we are as an evolutionary process is really key to understanding so much of what's going on in the world around us today. Um, see, the weird countries, and that, that is an acronym. It's not weird as in, ooh, there are weird people. It's weird as in um, Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic countries. So basically, Western Europe and over to America. Pretty much that's it. All right, everything else is still more or less normal and retains their own culture. The rest of the world, the rest of us, the weird countries. So I, I guess it is kind of a dig at us because we are really fucking weird and that we're trying to overthrow all of our own culture um, as a result of postmodernism. There we go. But this, the weird countries have this bizarre anti-logical thought that has taken over, that culture is essentially fake, that it's all a social construct and so is ripe for deconstruction under this postmodernist philosophy. Now, I've read many books that have explained why exactly that is a flawed theory that uh, postmodernism is, well, it's bullshit. That's, there's an ounce, roughly. And I'll include those links because I, I despise postmodernist philosophy. I've never actually even read postmodernist philosophy, but I've heard postmodernists speak and they say a whole lot of nothing. And it's very confusing to listen to them. And I'm sure they think that that means they're all very smart and intellectual because nobody can understand them except each other. And really that just means they're speaking nonsense. You should be able to understand the person you're talking to. And if you can't, it's, it's either because they're speaking a completely different language. And I mean completely different. Like I speak maybe a tiny little bit of Spanish, basic formalities, hola, como esta, that sort of thing. But 
I will recognize it as a foreign language if somebody speaks Spanish. Oh, they're speaking Spanish. Okay, and just enough to say, no habla espanol. That's pretty much what I can spit out. And that's courtesy, right? Postmodernists are not that. They, they are speaking gobbledygook specifically designed to confuse you so that you think they're really smart. That was a rant. I mean, did not mean to go on that rant about postmodernism, but I did. I'm going to leave most of that in. Haying and Weinstein carefully explained the full spectrum of why that thought process is so wrong it's practically backwards. Starting with basically the very first zygotes we were billions of years ago. Uh, we all evolved. We all crawled out of the same primordial soup. We were all fish at one point. And culture is very much a part of our evolutionary history because culture is what says, you know, eat that plant, don't eat that plant. Um, and they act actually have real examples of that in the book, too, of cu cultures that eat that plant, don't eat that plant. And they have to kind of wing it because there is no three-quarter ounce mark here. And it's weird that this is a stirred cocktail, not shaken, because usually the syrup means it's going to be shaken to really disperse that syrup. Whatever. There's that. I'm going to use a dash of just one dash. It's only supposed to be slightly spicy. We're going to do one dash of bitters. Each chapter is laid out with an overarching theme, and Hang and Weinstein explain how that theme developed evolutionarily over the last millions of years leading up to modern life and where we have gone so very wrong, where that particular theme is involved. Um, it's not they're, not, they're not quite advocating like Ludditism, right? That this total call to reverse all technology. They're not quite that extreme, but there are some very real problems as a result of modern day technology. And they, they highlight some of those problems and difficulties. Lucky I had a lemon in there. I almost had to do just regular lemon juice. Okay, three quarter ounce of lemon juice. Stir this all together. It does call for crushed ice in the cocktail, which is also interesting because that kind of waters it down a little bit. Well, anyways, it's interesting that I know all of these things. The things you learn mixing cocktails for, what, year and a half, two years, whatever long, year and a half, I guess. Anyways, it's not being a Luddite. It's not calling for that reversal of technology, but it's more of a cautionary tale, leaning heavily on uh, the two principles of Chesterton's fence and the sucker's folly. And those two, two ideas are so... I mean, they're almost central themes of the book, so I'm going to actually spell out each. They, they include these definitions in the book, and, and then, so uh, this is the definition they provided for Chesterton's fence. Chesterton's fence is the idea that reforms should not be made to a system until the reasoning behind the current state is understood. And this was originally described by G.K. Chesterton in 1929. So um, basically, we are so hung up on innovation and the next new thing that we aren't aware of what we are destroying in the pursuit of novelty. Beware of the trade-offs, basically. Uh, now, the example they use in the book is um, the appendix, right? And this has long been assumed to be a vestigial origin here in the West, in, in the weird countries, okay? And it turns out that the appendix is entirely useful in third world countries. I'm using quotes around that because I, I'm not sure how I feel about the term third world, to be perfectly honest. My politically correct is going to come out here. They may not be as advanced as us, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong in some of the things they do. Some of the things they do, sure, but some of the things they're probably spot on, like, for example, they very rarely have appendicitis in third world countries. Isn't that an interesting thing? So why would that be? Why do you think third world countries might not have appendicitis as a problem? It's because they still use their appendix. Um, it turns out the appendix is a repository of healthy gut flora. So in countries with high levels of diarrhea, like 
third world countries. The appendix helps to replenish that gut flora to a healthy working order after you've had a, a bout of one of these illnesses. We don't tend to have that as much here in the West and so we don't use our appendix as much and so it's seen as vestigial and approximately, I think they said 5% of people in the weird countries will have a problem with their appendix and will subsequently have it removed, even though it still serves a pretty solid function. And being quick to just remove an inflamed appendix ignores Chesterton's fence. I and mean, think about it. If ever there comes a day when modern medicine is not so readily available in the weird countries, like, um, what did they call it? It was a really massive event in the late or in the mid 19th century. Cause I had to look it up. I was like, Ooh, what's that? Carrington event, which was essentially a massive solar flare in the 1840s, like 1849. There was a massive solar flare. It didn't impact much of anything beyond, you know, creating a bit of a light show because we didn't have all of the technology we have now. Fast forward, about 160 years later, 170 years later, if we have another Carrington event, another massive solar flare like that, it's going to wipe out all of our communication. It's like a solar scent EMP is going to wipe out all electricity. And then having your appendix might not be a bad thing. Because if you have a running case of this shit, you might just be able to recover from that just fine. Hmm. That's not too shabby. That is not too shabby. Right. The sucker's folly is the tendency of a concentrated short-term benefit not only to obscure risk and long-term costs, but also to drive acceptance even when the net analysis is negative. Uh, I don't remember exactly what, I mean, I could look it up, but I didn't because what popped into my head immediately when I read that was um, electric cars. Uh, weird cultures are obsessed with electric cars, I mean, to the point that California has pushed to ban gas cars, cars in the next decade, insisting that all cars sold in California must be electric. But one of the major components in the batteries of electric cars is cobalt, which can only be found in very specific regions of the earth, primarily the African Congo. And the mining of it is done in horrific subhuman conditions. Those third world countries really need their appendix to deal with this crap. Um, but all these weird cultures with their noses in the air about their moral superiority and driving electric cars to save the earth care not one bit about the Congolese miners who die daily digging this cobalt out of the earth or from lung disease as a result of breathing in the cobalt dust. Uh, additionally, in order to keep their electric cars charged, they rely on coal power, good old coal, diesel generators, to charge their cobalt lithium batteries. Uh, lithium batteries are also the result of open pit mining. Um, no one in the Western world is innocent of this, by the way. Every single one of us, if you have a smart device in your pocket, then you are just as guilty as the person who owns the $100,000 Tesla or the $240,000 electric Lamborghini because your battery in your smartphone uses a cobalt lithium battery and is just as destructive of the environment, in fact, probably more so than the original diesel. Right, now, I'm not, or uh, gas-powered. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to find a solution to gas-powered because clearly there are problems as a result of this with the smog and everything, but I'm not at all sure that electric cars are going to be that solution. I, I feel like they're going to be their own problem, and that is a, a 
prime example of the sucker's folly, at least if I'm understanding it correctly. Um, now, the other overarching theme is kind of how wonderfully adaptable humanity is. Uh, essentially, as they say in the book, we, we don't, humanity's niche is niche switching, switching. So we don't necessarily, I mean, we have specialists, certainly, right? Individuals will be highly specialized in one particular field, but a lot of us are much more adaptable than that and are more generalists. Um, they, they refer there in, you know, the jack of all trades and master of none as kind of a bad thing. But if you look up the whole quote, it's jack of all trades, but master of none is oftentimes better than master of one. That's the full quote. Um, being a generalist is not necessarily a bad thing. And they do swing back around to that. At first I was like, hmm, I feel like they're missing something when I first read that quote in like chapter one. But by the end of the book, while they didn't roll out the whole quote, they certainly brought the fact that being a generalist, having more than one skill set, puts you in a very good position to survive whatever might be coming. That Carrington event. They point out how the weird cultures are steadily and rapidly ignoring the wisdom of the elders. Now, there's give and take here, and that is reinforced throughout the book. Push and pull. The beauty of having generations in, of a family in close proximity is that the younger generations have the chance to determine which boundaries can be pushly, safely pushed with minimal impact on the family unit or the larger tribe of humanity. And I feel like I'm not really paraphrasing that as best as I could, but that's kind of the gist of it, right? That the younger generations can determine what can safely be pushed because they have that family background to support them and pull their butts out of the fire if they really screw it up. Um, now, this isn't necessarily to say you should be having your children live in your house until they're 30 or 40 years old, but in fact, it's probably not a good idea to have them live in your house until they're 30 or 40 years old, because at some point they do need to leave, need, leave the metaphorical nest and learn how to fly on their own. But it, it's, yeah, I'm definitely paraphrasing that badly. I mean, basically, the book is peppered with anecdotes from their own lives as field researchers and what they learned in the field as evolutionary biologists and why it's so important to listen to people who have been there for a while. And they, they open the book with a really telling anecdote that you can immediately see the point they're making, which is they were in Costa Rica. Yes, Costa Rica doing one of their, their field studies and they were going to go for a swim because it was a really hot day and they're getting ready to jump in the river and this you know local comes up to them and, and manages to communicate to them, hey, you shouldn't be swimming today because it's raining in the mountains. And they're like, well, I mean, yeah, it's raining in the mountains, but it's not raining down here. Down here, it's nice. And the guy's like, no, it's raining in the mountains. You need to understand this. And he's like trying to dem like get across to them in his broken English or whatever that this is a bad thing to do. You don't want to be swimming. And as they're talking... The river is rapidly starting to rise, and what was once calm is becoming this swirling eddy, this maelstrom of insane water currents, because the rain in the river flows downhill. And so he was telling them, don't swim, you're going to drown because it's raining in the mountains. It's not safe to swim down here because of the weather up there. And that's the sort of thing that gets lost in cultural context when we ignore why culture exists, okay? That's something that he knew from his culture, from living there all of his life, that the river was now a dangerous place to be, and they didn't know. And if they hadn't listened to him, we probably wouldn't have the book today because they probably wouldn't have lived to tell about it. Um, 
the book covers in turn kind of the human niche, the history of our lineage, how our bodies evolved over time, uh, medicine, food, sleep, sex and gender, parenthood and relationships, childhood, school, adulthood, culture and consciousness, and where do we go from here? Um, most of the chapters included, I think like all but two of them included a bit at the end of the chapter called the corrective lens, kind of what can we do now or what can you do now to help offset some of the turbulence around you that is the result of modernity and this ever increasing pursuit of novelty for the sake of novelty. And I found those corrective lenses to be particularly useful. I mean, it was almost like a balm on my soul because I'm, I'm kind of already doing quite a few of the things in there. The world is so toxic right now. At least it is if you spend your life online, if you spend your life on social media. The world is a depressing fucking place. So, I mean, don't stop watching right now, but after you watch this video, like, go outside, get some sunlight or something. Um, some of the things I suggested, I kind of went through and picked out one point from each chapter because they're all really good. And they, I mean, all of the points are relevant but I picked out some of my favorites, essentially. Um, be skeptical of novel solutions to ancient problems, especially if the novelty is difficult to reverse, like ripping out your appendix, okay? Don't get me wrong, I'm sure there are times when it's absolutely necessary, but docs are awfully quick to cut and yank, and it may not necessarily be the best thing. Uh, spend time in nature. I mean, look, it is, like I said, Daily, you should be spending some time outdoor. Being buried in a screen, being buried in a book is not the best thing. I'm frankly waiting just for it to stop snowing so that I can start reading outside because getting that daily dose of vitamin D is really good for you. The internet is not real life, guys. And everybody tends to think it is. Uh, resist pharmaceutical solutions for medical problems if you can. That's not to say that you never need to see a doctor. There, there are certainly valid reasons to go see a doctor, but people are way too prone to running to the doctor at the first sign of a sniffle. And sometimes the best thing you can do is just rest. No doctor needed. Um, sometimes you just need a little diet and exercise. No doctor needed. Eat more fruits and vegetables, or as they put it, shop around the edges of the supermarket. The food in the middle on the shelves that's packed with preservatives, which absolutely violates Chesterton's fence in the extreme. Preservatives like that and the food are less than 100 years old. We have no long-term studies on their side effects on the population in general, although judging by our expanding waistlines here, it's a pretty good guess what the general population or the effect on the general population has been. Um, get good sleep and sleep early enough that you don't need an alarm clock to wake you up. Keep your bedroom dark with no blue light, i.e. your phones. Uh, blue light is the spectrum that we have during the daytime, and it's a well-known sleep disruptor. I mean, there are, like, so well-known there are actually apps that you can use to change the light on your phone to the red spectrum. I looked it up. This is true. You're better off just um, leaving your phone in the kitchen to charge at night. All right. Easy sex has been a catastrophe for the stability at home. Uh, I mean, women, there are a lot of evolutionary reasons that we used to be treasured and guarded as the gems of the family. Reasons that had less to do with being men's property and more with more to do with having a home life stability. All right. And it's all tied down to evolution. All right. The, the man needs to have a reason to stick around. And if he's not sure if the child is his, why would he? Okay. And more and more women are finding that out these days. And it's just creating an absolute catastrophe here in the West. Um, 
This is a big one. Do not interfere with children's development by trying to block, pause, or radically alter their development. And it's been said before, but bears repeating. This is not reversible. Right? This isn't just give them some shots and they can stop when they want to. There is permanent damage going on here in the name of being the wokest in the land. And one day you're going to actually wake up and realize that you are not the fairy godmother. You're the evil queen. And you did this to your child. So stop it. All right. Turn the sound down on your conversations and watch the actions. Literally, actions speak louder than words. When somebody shows you who they are, listen to them. Believe them. All right. Because whatever they're saying, and we are really bad at this one, because over and over and over again, we let politicians lie to us when their actions very clearly show us who they are. We're really bad about that one. Do not let inanimate objects babysit your children. That was an interesting one. I mean, I happen to agree with it. I don't have kids. I have fur babies. Um, but I agree with them. And man, people are way, way too fast to just plop their kids in front of the television. They drew an interesting and entirely believable parallel between the rise of using TV, tablets, and computers as child-rearing tools and the rise of autism. A much stronger parallel than the vaccine myth that was so thoroughly debunked. You had the kid raise that child. Spend time with your kids. Talk to them. Don't just plop them in front of a box to be raised by whatever propaganda is being shown today. And you wonder why kids are such a mess today. All they get is propaganda. All right. A university cannot simultaneously maximize the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of social justice. The two are basically mutually exclusive, and truth is far more important. Always be learning. That's, uh, that's why I started on this journey to read through my enormous library of books, because um, I wasn't learning enough. And I am one of those people who every time I walk on a campus, I'm like, ooh, maybe I should just take a class. And then I realized how much, how much propaganda and bullshit was being taught on classes. I realized that probably right around the time um, Haying and Weinstein were being canceled at Evergreen College, Evergreen State College. I don't know. I'll look it up. I'll, I'll put up here where they were teaching. But back in, I think it was 2017, they were canceled for calling out the social justice bullshit. And they ended up leaving their jobs. Now they have their, their podcast, the Dark Horse podcast, which is really good. And that was all the cost of social justice. That's part of the sucker's folly, in my opinion. Um, but I'm always learning. I, I'm I mean, there's that very alarming statistic about college graduates not reading after they complete their degree. Basically, they, they shut their minds down as soon as they have that paper in hand. And it's completely inexcusable. I mean, the world's information is available for free. And I am not talking about the internet, which has carefully curated content shown to you by your preferred search engine. I'm talking about your local library. All right, I buy books. I actually meet the literal definition of a library. A library is 1,000 or more books. I am double that capacity. I reached triple by the end of the year, but I'm not buying books. Um, I bought this one last year. But libraries are free, guys. You don't have to pay anything for that card. Now, if you're late returning the book, you'll have fines. But you can get the book for free at your local library. You don't have to buy it. Right, that, that knowledge is out there literally for free. Be ash negative. Um, that, that refers back to a very famous psychological experiment about peer pressure, essentially, that is completely re replicable. 
and what they mean is speak the truth, even in the face of adversity, speak the truth. Dispense with anything predicated on a utopian vision that focuses on a single value. When someone tries to maximize a single value, like for example, social justice, you know they're not an adult. Strive to be an adult. Look at the big picture, not just individual brushstrokes. Uh, this book was fascinating. It traces our shared evolution, like humanity's shared evolution across millions of years, and then shows us how it applies to us today and how we can kind of take back a sense of self in a world gone crazy with self-centeredness. And it was a unique perspective. Learning how to take a step back from the hyper novelty that is the 21st century life in a weird country is important. Um, it's important, I think, to everybody's well-being. I enjoyed reading this book. I enjoyed the history, which uh, the history and the biology, and that's really important because I was not good with science in school. <laughs> I I believe it was organic chemistry that made me switch my major because it's just just way too much for me. But even a non-biologist like me was able to be pulled in to a compelling story that was well written. I highly recommend this book for anybody who's looking for a connection to the past as a way into the future. It was good. And that's it for this week. Um, thank you guys for watching. I will see you next Sunday. Bye.